right now. So tonight, I get the opportunity to share with you all. And tonight, we're going to be talking about two particular psalms and a few other scriptures in between. But the two psalms are going to be Psalm 15 and Psalm 23. So if you would turn to Psalm 23, go ahead and read through a couple of things and, and pray and then just dive right in. So before you get to Psalm 23, I wanted to share two other scriptures with you. And the first one is Proverbs 12, 28. It says, in the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. And Psalm eleven seven says, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness, and his countenance beholds the upright. And that brings us to Psalm 23. It says, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Heavenly Father, as we come before you once again, desiring to study your word, to, to get to know you better, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would prepare us to hear from you, and, and I ask, Father, that you would grant to me your words and not my own, and, and that if there is anything that is not of you, that, that you would just remove it from our hearts even now. Just allow us to be focused upon you tonight, that you would receive glory, honor, and praise, that you would be worshiped in the way that we study your word tonight. And so we give you this time and all that we are, and we ask and pray all of this. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So the title of tonight's study is The Paths of Righteousness. And I love Psalm 23, as I'm sure most of you do, and it's something that, that if you've grown up in the church, and maybe even if you haven't, it's a very familiar passage of Scripture. It's often quoted. You see it at all different kinds of things, particularly in sympathy, in times of, of mourning, times of loss. But it's something that, that we learn at a very early age. But do we really understand it? First of all, what is righteousness? What does it mean to have righteousness? Not just to be righteous, but what does it mean to have righteousness? What is this quality of righteousness? But also, as you go through Psalm 23, what does it mean to walk with God? We talk about our spiritual walk. We talk about walking closely with the Lord. We talk about the need to get back on track, to get back to walking rightly. And then, consequently, what does it mean to walk with God in the path of righteousness, as it says there, that he leads me in the path of righteousness in verse 3, for his namesake. So what does it mean to walk with God in the path of righteousness? There's a story by a man named Bob Cohen. It's called, They Speak With Other Tongues. It's a little bit lengthy, but I think it's important, and I think it helps bring across the point. And so he starts by saying, have you ever been saved? A rather wide-eyed young fellow startled me with this question as we waited for the bus. He handed me a booklet with a picture of hell on the front. I said, sure. Once when I was nine years old, I was swimming at Jones Beach on Long Island and a strong undertow began to drag me out to sea. My uncle heard my call for help and, no, 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 he interrupted, redeemed. Have you ever been redeemed? You know, reborn washed in the blood. What? I inquired. What in the world are you talking about? Convicted. You know, have you ever felt convicted? No, of course not, I replied. I've never been in trouble with the law in my life. He looked at me square in the eye. I think you need to be delivered. Delivered? I was just waiting for the bus home. I think I'll stick with that, but thank you very much. He looked at me as if I was speaking another language. Can we have lunch together sometime? He asked. I worked just down the street. Sure, that'd be fine. He looked harmless enough, but I must admit, 
He was an unusual fellow and quite difficult to understand. That Wednesday, I had lunch with Ed. He was a little late, but he explained that he was having some quiet time. Quiet time, I asked. What do you mean? Oh, each day, just before lunch, I have some time in my prayer closet, he responded. I was puzzled. Do you pray in a closet at work? No, he answered. It's in my car. A closet? In your car? He changed the subject. Like the first day I met him, again, he left me confused. This Ed is quite a unique fellow, I thought. As we parted that day, Ed gave me a little booklet that explained how someone could come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I read it, and I understood it, and I knew that that was exactly what I needed. That night, I submitted my life to Jesus, and I was born again, as it stated in the booklet. Two days later, I told Ed, and he was overjoyed. The following week, we got together again, and Ed strongly urged me to find a good body. I was surprised at his suggestion, but it sounded good to me. So I took his advice and proceeded to comb the local gyms for an attractive woman. When I met Denise, I knew she was the one. We began to date, and soon she became a believer too. Ed rejoiced and told us that it was crucial that we get planted so that we could grow together. Sometimes it's hard to understand this guy, I confided to Denise. I told Ed that I wasn't quite sure what he meant by planted. He responded, Committed. You know, you both need to be committed now that you know Jesus. Now, wait a minute, I protested. Just because I don't understand what planted mean doesn't mean I'm nuts. Anyway, I think that trusting Jesus is the most sane thing I've ever done in my life. It was obvious that Ed's patience was growing thin. He explained, Bob and Denise, you have to get plugged in. Don't you understand? But of course we didn't. But I did wonder if getting plugged in had any connection with going out under the power, something that I had heard Ed mention but hoped it would never happen to me. Regretfully, I had to miss worship the next Sunday, but Ed and I had breakfast together Monday morning, and he filled me in on what happened. God moved, he said with excitement. God really moved yesterday. Well, where is he now? I pleaded. I was just getting to know him, and now he's gone? No, no, Bob, God hasn't gone anywhere. I was relieved. It's just that so many people were stepping out and moving in the gifts. You mean people were leaving during the meeting? I asked. And what's this about presents? No, no, it's the gifts. The gifts were really flowing, he said. That's beautiful, I answered. People were giving gifts to each other. I wish I was there. Now Ed really seemed confused. Anyway, he said, changing the subject, Denise was there and boy was she on fire. Fire? Denise got burned? What happened? Is she okay? No, Bob, you don't understand. That sure is an understatement, I thought. Denise is just fine. It's just that I believe she is really called and that God wants to use her. Things just weren't getting any clearer for me. Did Denise mention that she's getting too many phone calls or something? And what's this about God wanting to take advantage of her, I asked. Ed sighed. Can I walk in the light with you? Well, where do you want to go, I answered. Of course we can walk in the light. It's daytime, Ed. He just shook his head. I don't know what that is, but sometimes it seems that Ed and I have a hard time communicating. Well, it's been two years now since I was saved and delivered. Now I'm plugged in, planted, and committed to a good body. God has been moving, and I've been stepping out in the gifts. I can hardly believe how God has been using me. I have developed one new problem, though. It seems that all my old friends just don't understand me anymore. When I share about my redemption, that I've been washed as white as snow, and that I desire to follow the Lamb, they seem to tune me right out. I guess they're just convicted when they see that I'm on fire. And this whole story goes to illustrate how isolated and insulated sometimes we can become. And it's not just to the outside world, to the unchurched. I think sometimes we even get into that place inside the body where we start talking about things. We read through different things in the Bible, different passages of Scripture, and there are words that, that maybe we just didn't quite understand. Maybe we misapplied them. We didn't understand the reference that was being made. And instead of asking questions, we just kind of use context clues. And in many cases, that's a good thing. 
But sometimes that can be extremely dangerous, especially when we're trying to get to know God. It's easy to describe all of the Christian attributes that we are to possess, along with all of the logical and laid out ways to receive these precious gifts. But we need to do more than that. We need to be able to fully explain to a firm understanding. We need to get these things so clear that not only do we understand them, but that we can explain them to anybody. Not just to somebody who's been indoctrinated with Christianese, but to anybody. And we need to know these things ourselves. We need to know them inside and out. And so that brings us to these two passages, Psalms 23 and Psalm 15. The first one, it starts, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So what does that really mean? In my estimation, what that means to me is that the Lord provides, that God gives to me everything that is necessary for this life. He doesn't give me everything that I desire necessarily, but he gives me everything that I need. And I think that's the first place to start with this passage is to understand the difference between a need and a want. There are things that we so desperately want that we start to call them a need, that I need to have this in order to live. But really, most of the things that we think we need, we don't need at all. They're just things that we strongly desire. There's really only one thing, and it has a lot of different attributes to it, but there's only one thing that we really need in this life, and that is God. That is God. I remember talking to, to a traveling worship leader one time, and we were talking about all sorts of different things, but one of the things that, that really stuck out to me from that conversation that, that I will probably take with me for the rest of my life is that this whole life, everything, if you could wrap it all up in one thing, it's all to make one decision. One decision. Your whole life, every person that you've ever met, every experience that you've ever had, everything that you've ever accomplished in your life, all of it boils down to one decision. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior or not? That's what everything is about. Everything is culminating in that one choice, that one decision. And for some of us, we've already made that choice. For some of us here, maybe you haven't made that choice. But this whole life is about that one decision. And so that is the one and only thing that you truly need. And if you find that, then God will grant to you all the other things that you need. But then he also blesses us above and beyond. But it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So that means he takes care of all of my needs. He watches over me. He protects me. And so my response to that has to be not wanting. To learn to live without the things that God has not given. Because there is a reason. Maybe it's a timing thing. Maybe something that I want, God wants me to have, but it's not the right time. But maybe there are things that we want that God is trying to explain to us are not going to be good for us in the long run. Maybe if he granted us those things, it would pull us further from him or it would cause us to pull somebody else further from him. But whatever the reason is, there is a time, there is a plan, there is a purpose. And his ways are so much better than ours. Not just higher, but better. I think if we could really wrap our minds around that, not just think of it that God's ways are higher than ours, but that God's ways are better than ours. That if we would just trust him for everything, that God would grant us so much more than we deserve because that's his heart that's his desire is to grant us everything that we need and then some now the and then some is different things in each one of our lives and we don't pick those god picks those but it says the lord is my shepherd i shall not want that brings us to verse 2 where he says he makes me to lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside the still waters in other words, God grants us the rest that we so desperately desire. We are constantly in search of rest, especially if you're a parent. It is just a constant struggle. You know, the, the default go-to answer when somebody says, how are you feeling today? Tired, exhausted, blessed, but tired and exhausted. I have four tremendous blessings at home, six, four, two, and a baby but they all, each individually, make me extremely tired and exhausted. 
And that's not even to mention how tired and exhausted my wife is because she's the one that spends more time with them during the day. But they are a blessing. And one of the things that I have found to be true and such an awesome thing in my life is that some of the things that make us the most weary and the most tired, that when we release those things to God, God restores, God gives rest, God gives peace, God gives wisdom, God gives strength. God does all of these amazing things. And then we are once again reminded about the blessing of whatever it was that was making us tired. So God grants us the rest that we so desperately desire when we stay close to him. And it's easy. You know, that's not something that's Christianese. Like, what does it mean to stay close to somebody? What does it mean to grow in a relationship with somebody? It means you get to know them more and more. It means you want to spend time with them. You want to know what they think. You want to know their thoughts, their opinions, their desires, their wants, their likes, their dislikes. And that's what it means to stay close to God, is to get to know all of these different things. And so God grants us this rest when we stay close to him. And he also restores from the weariness. In verse 3, it says, He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That he guides us into the right things. That as we spend time with him, as we spend time praying, as we spend time reading the word, as we spend time seeking out what his desire is, what his will is, what he would do in a situation, God leads us to the right thing all the time. He's always faithful. He's completely perfect without shadow of variation. So he is always faithful to lead us into this path of righteousness, which quite simply is to say the right thing, to always do the right thing, to always do the God thing, the godly thing, the thing that God would do if he were in this situation. That's the simple definition of righteousness to be holy, to be set apart, to be sanctified, all of these things boil down to this one thing, and that is to do what God desires. And so when we are staying close to him, God guides us into the right things. And then in verse 4, it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In the midst of every difficult time, every trying situation, that God still gives us this peace, this rest. That he still restores our souls from the weariness. That he still desires to bring us through to the other side. And not just barely, but he desires to strengthen us as he brings us through to the other side. And then verse 5. says, you prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. That even in the midst of these difficult times, even when part of the difficulty of this life is that people are dogging you, that people are on your case, people are giving you a hard time, people are maybe even lying about you, people are maybe trying to get you fired, trying to, to get you arrested, whatever it is, that even in the presence of your enemies, the people that can't stand you, the people that hate you, literally, that even in the midst of that, that God is still there and that he is still blessing, we just have to be able to look a little deeper sometimes. Sometimes the blessing is a little bit more inside. You know, you talk about the, the silver lining, trying to find the, the, the rainbow in every rain cloud. All of those things are cheesy, but, but they do prove a point is that sometimes, even in the midst of the, the biggest struggle that you've ever had in your life, God is growing you the most. That he is granting you this strength that you never knew you had. And so God wants to be close to you, but mostly he wants us to be close to him. And then the last verse there, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Goodness, I think we understand, it's this, this wholeness, this completeness, this, this good thing that all these good things are wrapped up in, that God wants us to have that goodness in our lives, but also the mercy, the mercy, that when we mess up, that there is still mercy, that it's not something that God wants to condemn you, God wants to convict you, but he wants to restore you that you would receive the goodness once again, that we would be able to walk in that all the days of our lives, and then the, the eternal blessing, the eternal promise to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, 
to be with God forever, to dwell in the house of the Lord. It's a, it's a catchy phrase. It's in the Bible. It's scriptural. But what does it mean? All, simply all that means is that you get to spend all of eternity. That means forever. After this life ends, that there is something that is deeper, that is way more awesome, and is going to last eternally, everlasting, without end, infinite. And that is to spend the rest of your life with God, to be in his presence. And so all of these things we can get lost in. We can, we can know some of them and, and you just try to find the context clues around it, but we need to start learning to break down the scriptures and not just wait until we get to, to a Bible study, not just wait until we read a devotional, not just wait until a Sunday morning, but that we each would desire every day, moment by moment, to be growing in this. And that part of that is to spend time really dissecting what each sentence in the Word of God means. What does it mean? And not just what does it mean out there, you know, abstract, but what does it mean in my life? How does this apply directly to me? One of the things that changed my life dramatically in terms of studying the Bible is to pray before I started that God would show me an application. Simply what that means is that God would show me how this applies to my life. So that it's not just learning academically, not just learning about God, but learning how God wants to change me through what I'm studying. And if you are faithful to ask God to show you that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God will be faithful to do it. I truly believe that God is always faithful to do that. Sometimes it's not an immediate answer. There are some times where, where you'll spend and you'll just dig deep and you'll try and you'll understand everything, but you're having a hard time explaining how that's going to apply to your life. But then later on that day, maybe later on that week, God brings this, this revelation to you that, see, that's why you studied that, because now you're going to put it into practice right now. And God is so faithful to do that if we are faithful to ask. But that brings us to, to Psalm 15, beginning in verse 1. It says, A psalm of David, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness. Again, walking in the paths of righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. But he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. And so he goes through, and I think that, that he gives a really good understanding of what it means to walk in righteousness. What it means to walk uprightly and to work righteousness. He goes through and he gives very practical understanding, practical applications. And the first thing that he asks there is, who may abide in your tabernacle? Another way to describe that, and you know, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but, but how many of you know what a tabernacle is? I mean, what, what is a tabernacle? You know, if, if my four-year-old comes up and asks you, what's a tabernacle? What are you going to say? Like, how do you explain that to a four-year-old? You know, we, we start thinking about all the things that we know, and then we start dissecting them, and, and a lot of this, this whole thing, this understanding and needing to know intimately what all these words mean and how this applies, is because my kids are starting to ask Dad all of these hard questions. Questions that, like, what does it mean to love somebody? Well, and, and you start to, well, it just means you love them. I love you. Okay, but what does that mean? Well, these are some of the things I do. Okay, but what, what does it mean to love? Because you can not love somebody and still do all of those nice things. What does it mean to love? What does it mean to walk in righteousness? And what does it mean to want to go into the tabernacle of God? Who may abide in your tabernacle? That's a Christianese phrase. It's in the scriptures. It's biblical. But what does that mean? Another translation says, Who may worship in your sanctuary? Or who may worship in your presence? Who can spend time in your presence, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? That's what he's asking. 
The psalmist is asking, who can stand in your presence? Who can spend time with you? Who is it that you desire to share everything with and that they will get it, that they will understand as you're explaining these things? And the answer starts in verse 2. It says, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Again, another translation, the New Living Translation says, those who lead blameless lives, blameless lives, he who walks uprightly is to lead a blameless life. It's not a perfect life. It's not completely without blemish. Blameless life means that when you do fall, that you are restored once again, that you ask for forgiveness, that you're repenting, you're turning away from that. Repenting is just a big word that means to turn away from it, to go in the opposite direction. So he says, those who lead blameless lives and do what is right. Again, that's what it means to work righteousness, to walk in the path of righteousness, is to do what is right. Speaking the truth from sincere hearts, to speak the truth in your heart, to speak the truth in sincerity, not just to tell the truth but not believe it, but to tell the truth, including and especially the gospel of Jesus Christ with sincerity, that you really mean it because you really believe it in your heart, that there is no doubt in your mind to be able to speak that truth. He continues on to describe this, this person that can spend time with God and really get something out of that relationship. In verse 3, he says, He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. Again, there are some words here that they're, they're used a lot, that we're all familiar with, but do we understand how they apply? He who does not backbite with his tongue. What does that mean? It means those who refuse to gossip. To backbite with your tongue is to, to, in today's modern terms, to stab someone in the back. To be talking about someone behind their back. He who does not backbite with his tongue. I mean, this has a, a very, very real, clear, and direct application to each one of our lives. Because we will all be faced with this temptation on a regular basis. All of us, always, have opportunities. We all have opportunities to talk bad about somebody when they're not there. And we might try to excuse it. We might try to say, well, it's the truth. It's because they deserve it or it's because it really happened. Well, yeah, but were you really someone who needed to share that with somebody else that had no interest or no knowledge of the situation? Is backbiting with the tongue, is stabbing someone in the back, talking behind their back, is that really something that God desires? Obviously not, and it's not something that's going to allow you to be able to hear clearly from the Lord. You know, another way to think about this whole passage, Psalm 15, all these things that, he, that we're getting into that he says don't do, if you are having trouble hearing clearly from God about something or everything in your life, this is a pretty, pretty easy checklist to go through. This isn't all-encompassing. That means that just because you get all of these things right doesn't mean that you don't have something else going on. But if you can't get through Psalm 15, then maybe that's the reason that you're having a hard time getting that understanding from God about whatever it is. But so, so this first part there, he says, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. As long as you understand that when they come and they ask Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, everybody. You know, that's who your neighbor is, everybody. So you're not doing harm to anybody. And then the last part there, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. Reproach. It's another big word. It's another word that you see all the time. It's another word that we go through a ton. But what does that mean practically in our lives? means to speak evil of their friends. So he does not take up a reproach against his friend. He doesn't bring up anything evil about his friend. doesn't mean you don't convict someone who's doing something wrong, but you don't shove their nose in it. You don't constantly bring it up, and you don't start going around telling other people about the problems that your friend has in his or her life. These are all things that God frowns upon. These are all things that keep us from being able to hear him clearly. It says, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. And then in verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Again, some of these things. What's a vile person? What does it mean? 
A vile person is an evil person, someone who's constantly doing evil. So it says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. That means to call sin what it is, and that is sin. That is wrong. That is against God. It's against the Bible. It's against what we should believe because this is what God stands for. Too many times we get caught up in calling evil good. We want to be able to be inclusive. We want to be able to, to be politically correct. We want to be able to not offend people. But if the gospel, if the truth of the word of God offends somebody, that's not the problem that I have. That's the problem that that person has with God. And the sooner that we share that problem with them and share, them, share with them the right direction to, to point that anger at, sometimes the sooner God can work to break that heart and to change that person's life. But when we acknowledge sin for what it is, it's what happens. When we choose to not acknowledge sin for what it is, when we choose to gloss it over, we cover it up, we want to be inclusive, we, we don't want to offend, we want to bring people in, we want to do all these things. And so we water down the truth and we stop calling sin evil, we stop calling evil evil, we have a hard time ourselves hearing from God. But then he says, but he honors those who fear the Lord. It says, those who despise flagrant sinners. That means you're just constantly living in that sin. But honor the faithful followers of the Lord and keep their promises even when it hurts. Again, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but, but how many of you have ever been faced with that kind of a situation where you have the opportunity to get out of something? but it means going back on your word. But if you go back on your word, it's going to save you a whole lot of pain. Whether it's a heartache, whether it's punishment, maybe it's saving your job, maybe it's preventing you from having to pay for, for damages that you actually caused, whatever it is. How many of you have ever been faced with a situation like that? It's happened. It happens a lot. Some of us, it happens multiple times in our lives. Some of us, it might happen weekly. Are we able to be honest about these things and to really be able to say that I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to be truthful. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to walk in righteousness. I'm going to do the good thing, even at my own cost, even if it pains me to do so, even if it causes negative consequences in my life, worldly consequences, that I'm going to put the, the heavenly, spiritual, eternal consequences, the positive consequences, and I'm going to weigh those, esteem those to be more important than anything I might lose here. I mean, that's powerful when you, when you really start to dig into what this means. Because, again, going all the way back to the beginning of this chapter, he's talking about who can really worship in the presence of God and be able to have that fellowship, that one-on-one, -on -one, that communion, that depth in their relationship, that growing experience with God. It's somebody who keeps their word even unto pain. That's powerful. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. And then verse 5, he who does not put out his money at usury nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. To generously lend, to, to lend money without charging interest. Again, it's a pretty simple one, but usury, like what is that? <laughs> Before we talk tonight, again, don't raise your hand. How many of you really knew what usury meant? To be perfectly honest, I didn't look up the pronunciation. I don't even know if I'm saying it right, but I think that's how you say it. But usury, how many of us knew what that was? I remember somebody trying to, to tell me about usury one time, and, and I, to be perfectly honest, had no clue what they were talking about. I, and the context clues, because they were using it wrong, the context clues that they were giving me just left me even more confused. Usury, I actually had to go look it up to find out what that meant. And that's fine. That's good. That's something that I would encourage you to do. You know, there are people that, that I know in this fellowship that they literally study the Bible with a dictionary right next to the Bible. And that's not an embarrassing, shameful thing. That's an awesome thing. That we would all be humble enough to be able to do something like that. That if we don't understand something, to be able to search out the answer for that. 
but usury is is to to take to take from somebody to to give them money but to be charging them interest and not just like a, a minimal amount but to really be extorting money from them to take advantage of their situation do you lend generously and when you do lend when you do give to others do you do it just out of the goodness of your heart and out of what God has blessed you with or are you constantly trying to find a return in that but it says nor does he take a bribe against the innocent or someone who cannot be bribed to lie about the innocent you know again it's another thing that you can get faced with a lot in the workplace that somebody maybe a supervisor comes and they tell you hey look I know that this was not, not my fault. I know that this was not your fault, but we need you to take the blame for it because if you take the blame for it, it's gonna work out better for everybody. We'll make sure that you get a promotion. We'll make sure that nothing bad happens to you, but we just need somebody to take the fall and it can't be a higher up. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe they, they come and they tell you, hey, look, it was my fault, but, but I'm gonna lose my job. I'm going to lose my job, and so, so I'll pay you, or I'll, I'll do this for you, or I'll, I'll do your work for you, or whatever it is, if you'll just lie and say it was somebody else. You know, are we tempted like that? Are we temptable like that? And then the last thing, he who does these things shall never be moved. Another way to say that is that such people will stand firm forever. And where are we standing firm forever? You go back to the beginning of the chapter, and, and he's talking about spending time with God, about, about being in the presence of God, about learning directly from God, not learning about God from somebody else, but learning about God from God himself. Who is he who can worship in your tabernacle? Who can worship in your sanctuary, who can worship in your presence, who can spend time in your presence and truly get something out of it? Who is that man? And then to go through and to be able to, to find yourself in that place and to know that if you're doing these things, that you can stand firm in that place. And no matter what else is going on, that you're going to be able to stay there. You know, that, that like Paul would write as he's going through all of these different things and, and he lays them all out. He talks about shipwrecks. He talks about perils from countrymen. That means people are, are causing him harm from his own country, people that are like him, and from, from others, from outsiders, from Greeks. And he talks about being shipwrecked, about being snake bit, about being stoned to death, about all of these things, all these persecutions. But he says, none of these things shall move me. And why is that? Because of the righteousness that God was leading him in and because of the closeness in his relationship with God, because he was able to follow in the path of righteousness. You know, you go through so many different places in the Word of God, and, and this is a, uh, an admonition that is repeated over and over and over again. To be holy, to be righteous, to be sanctified. Again, what does sanctified mean? It means to be set apart, to be different from the world, to be a, a holy, special people. This is what God desires. God desires for us to walk in this righteousness, but he doesn't just throw us out there and say, I know it's hard, but figure it out. He doesn't even throw us. He leads us in the path of righteousness. One of the best pictures that I could give to you of that is that when, when my daughter gets scared, when my two-year-old gets scared, it's without fail. Sometimes even without saying a word, I will feel a little hand in mine. And that's it. Calms the fear completely. It's not a, a, a thing that, that she's got to hear me say all these things. It's not a, a thing that I have to go slay a dragon or, you know, turn on every light in the house. If I just hold her hand, everything's fine. I might be scared of whatever's going on, but as long as I'm holding her hand, she's fine. That's what it means to be led by God to be able to reach out your hand to his, obviously figuratively, but to be able to reach your hand out to his and to have him lead you, to walk with you, to guard you, to guide you, to protect you. That's God's desire. The Lord is my shepherd, and shepherd has so much 
into it. Like you could do an entire sermon just on what it means, the Lord is my shepherd. But part of that is protection. The protection that God grants is far beyond anything else that you could ever experience in this life. You know, it's, it's more than a gun. It's more than an alarm system. It's more than an army. It's more than laws. It's more than the strongest people, the most skilled people. It supersedes everything. And God has promised not only to lead us in the path of righteousness, to, to desire, strongly desire that we would get there, but then to help us to stand firm there, to not be moved, regardless of what is taking place around us. But even though we know all of the things to do, we know all the right things, we know all the right things not just to say, but to do, and even though we are in the process of doing them, sometimes it can still be difficult. And Paul writes about this very thing in Galatians chapter 6 verses 7 through 10, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Again, this is not just a negative promise. This is a, a good promise. He says that, and, and again, we're using all these words that maybe, maybe not everybody understands. What does it mean to sow? What does it mean to reap? To sow means to plant. That whatever you're doing, you're planting, you're, you're building this, you're watering it, you're, you're trying to help make it grow. That whatever you plant, that's what you're also going to pick from this tree. So that when you sow, when you plant a tree and it bears fruit, whatever fruit is on that tree, now you come back and you pick it, you reap it. So that's a positive thing. It's a positive thing if we're doing the right things. But if we're not walking in righteousness, if we're not doing the right things, then all those things that we're planting, they're going to come back and they're going to bite us. They're going to bite us in the backside. There's a lot of different words that you could throw in there. But it's going to come back to bite us. It's going to cause a problem. But this is a positive promise. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh, that if you're planting the flesh, if you're watering the flesh, you're feeding the flesh, you're doing the things of the world, of the flesh will reap corruption. It means you're gonna, what you're going to get back is a whole lot of evil. If you are spending time indulging the flesh all the time, doing all these things that you know are wrong for you, that God is trying to pull you away from, literally pull you, not just telling you, hey, that's not a good idea, but God is trying to drag you out of it and you keep pulling yourself back in, the world is going to give you evil in return. But he who sows or plants or waters to the Spirit, to the good things of God, will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Everlasting life. But then he gets to, to the part that we really wanted to get to in this passage. Verse 9, he says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Let us not grow weary in doing good. And that is hard. If someone told you that it's not, they lied to you. It is hard. It is hard to not grow weary in doing good sometimes. It's not an everyday thing. It doesn't mean that, that every time you make the right choice that it's a difficult one. But it means that if you are constantly trying to do the right thing over and over again, that there are times when we lose sight of God, when we stop thinking about the reason that we're doing it and we just focus on doing it, that we can grow weary in doing good. But he says the way to combat that, if you find yourself growing weary, growing tired, becoming frustrated in doing good, to remember that in due season, that in God's perfect time, you will reap the good things of God, the blessings of God. And again, blessings, it's a big word. It's a word that, that's used in the Bible a lot. It's a word that, that man uses all the time for a lot of things that are not really what it stands for. Blessings are so much more than just how much money you've got or the kind of job you have or, or the, the toys that you've got. You know, I already shared with you guys that four of my, my greatest blessings are my children. My wife is another one. You know, those, those are five of the greatest blessings that God has given to me in my life. You know, I couldn't put a, a monetary value on them. I, I couldn't tell you, well, this one's worth this much, and this one, because they're being bad, is worth less, or, or whatever. I, I can't do that. Like, it's, 
but they are blessings. They are some of the most prized blessings in my life. It goes without saying, or at least it should for all of us in here, that Jesus is the greatest blessing that we have ever been given. And same thing, you can't, wait, if somebody said, I'll give you a million dollars, would that be enough? Would that be enough to, to turn your back on Jesus? Can you really think about things in monetary ways when, when you're talking about the blessings of God? Money is a blessing. But just because you don't have as much as you might want, that doesn't mean you're not blessed. But the blessing, in due season we shall reap the blessings if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity in verse 10, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then Micah, Micah 6, verses 6 through 8, it says, With what shall I come before the Lord? Again, we're talking about worshiping the presence of God, about spending time, about getting something out of that time with God. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? All of these different things, these amazingly difficult things to get. These costly things to give. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord? And then he gets to verse 8. Truly one of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To do justly. To do rightly. To love mercy. Not just as it's shown to us, but to love showing mercy to others. To allow them to grow. I had a long conversation today in a, in a group, a, a board that I'm on. And we were talking about having to, to put down a punishment or a, a consequence on a group of people. And, and the, this is a group of Christian people. It's a board of Christians. And even in the midst of that group, there was just this undercurrent of no mercy. It was just, let's just throw the book at them. Let's do everything that we possibly can to make sure that they never forget that they messed up. That's not mercy. Mercy is to be able to, to tell them that they're wrong, to be able to do something to show them that they were wrong, but then to help them to not do it again. Not to stick their nose in it over and over again. Not so that everybody will know and be reminded constantly every time they see that person. Not to put the scarlet letter on them. Mercy is to, to restore them. To bring them back. So to do justly. To do the right things. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Now we have a, a much better understanding, I would hope, of what it means to walk with God. And so to walk humbly with God is to be reminded of how miserable we are without God. To be reminded of how miserable we are without God. How many times in our lives as Christians, not before Jesus changed our lives, but as Christians, how many times do we get comfortable and complacent? We just get into that place where, where things are rolling good, Things are rolling along pretty smooth, and, and we just drop the ball a little bit here and there. You know, we, we forget that, that we didn't set the alarm, and so we wake up a little bit late that day, and we, and we squeeze out that time that we would normally spend reading the Word. Or we squeeze out that time in the, the prayer closet, like the story talked about. Or maybe something came up, and, and somebody asked you to go do something special, and so you, you go out, and you, oh, I don't really have time, but, but if I you know, cut God out. And we don't say it like that, but, but if I cut God out, if I cut out that 30 minutes or that hour or whatever it is, I'll still be able to do this and get everything else done in the day. And it's only going to be one time. It's only going to be one day. And then it becomes a couple of times a week. Then it becomes a regular occurrence. And then pretty soon we've drifted. We've drifted so much further than we ever wanted to or even thought we could. 
that's not God's desire. God's desire is that we would walk humbly with him, that we would constantly recognize our need for him. Even when things are going good, to be reminded that things are only going good because he is there. Even when we're not pulling, even when we're not seeking, even when we're not trying to get to him, the only good things that we have in our lives are still coming from him. We didn't do anything to deserve him. We didn't do anything to deserve him. So to walk humbly with our God. And then the last thing, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 through 34. He says, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? So he's, Paul's writing here to the church in Corinth, and he's telling them, what good would all of these things be if the dead do not rise at all? What, of what value, of what importance would giving your life even be if the dead do not rise in Christ? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? And that was a literal thing for Paul at the time. I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there is nothing after this life, if eternity is just a big myth, then what's the point of being righteous? What's the point of being good? But he says that there's truth to all of this, before that and after that. But then in verse 33, he says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Sometimes the evil company is inside the walls of the church. Evil company inside the church exists. And evil company inside the church especially corrupts good habits. Make sure that you are not the evil company. Awake to righteousness, verse 34, and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. And then he says, again, speaking to the church, I speak this to your shame. He's not talking outside. He's talking inside. For some do not have the knowledge of God. He's not saying that some don't know God at all. He's not saying that some are, are going to hell, although there, there probably are people inside churches, maybe even inside our own church, that are still going to hell, that still don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But what he's saying is that they have no knowledge of God, no deep understanding of God. You know, a few months back, we, we talked about Exodus and, and how Moses is spending time with the Lord, and, and he goes up on the mountain, and he says, just, just let me see you. Like, it's not enough. It's not enough. And he keeps asking, you know, well, it's not going to be worth it unless you go with us. But even if you go with us, it's not going to be enough unless you lead us. And even if you lead us, it's still not going to be enough. If I could just see you, if I could just see your presence, if I could just know you, know you, to deeply know you, to intimately know you, if I could just know you, that would be enough. Is that how we desire to get to know God? Because I can guarantee you that that is the only way that we can walk in righteousness. That is the only way. I don't care how good you could try to be outside of that. If you are not holding on for dear life, there's a song that we used to sing about clinging that I will cling, that I will cleave. I, I mean, those words, there's so much more than just holding. Like, it is holding on for dear life. Again, the best picture is a child. When my daughter is just super fearful, that she came running, that she was away from me and she came running, she jumps into my arms and she holds on for dear life. I can't pull her off of me. I can't put her down. I can't do anything. I, it's, you just got to learn to function with a two-year-old wrapped as tightly as possible. Do we cling like that? Do we cling to Jesus? Do we cling to spend time with him? Is that one of those no-go areas in our schedule? That no matter what happens, even if something bad, even if it pains me, I'm going to keep my promise to God and I'm going to spend time with him today. Can we say that? I would hope that we can. We need to get to know what all of these things mean and how they apply directly to our lives. And if you have trouble with it, there are tons of resources available. We are resources here. If you have questions, ask us. 
you know, I'm hopeful in the next couple of months that we'll be able to, to get something out there that would allow you guys the opportunity to be able to submit questions to us and we can respond to them, whether it's through email or through an app or I don't know yet. We're, we're working on it. But, but I think that that's an important tool for you guys to be able to use or a resource. We want to be that for you. There are apps, there are websites. Blue Letter Bible is one of my favorites. It's an app. It's also a website. It's completely free. There are tons of different things that you can use on there to study. And there is nothing more important than a good dictionary. Because you need to know what the Word of God says. And you need to know what it means. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for the truths that are contained therein. And we thank you for the opportunity that you give to us to know you deeper, better, more intimately through it. I ask and pray that, that we would not ever take that for granted, but that we would truly desire to get to know you deeper, more intimately, that we would spend time reading and studying and asking you to help us apply these things to our lives that it would be more than just memorization, that it would be more than just academic understanding, but that we would have practical application in our lives, that we would learn to live out the scriptures. And whatever it takes to get us to that, Lord, we ask for that. We ask for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit tonight. We ask that, that you would continue to work in our hearts, that, that maybe if we find ourselves in Psalm 15 on, on all the things that we shouldn't be doing, Lord, that you would help us to correct those things in our lives, to draw closer to you. And that if maybe we're doing all the right things, but maybe we've just grown weary, we've grown tired in doing good, please help us to have our vision restored, to have our strength renewed, and, and to keep our eyes focused on you, to want to grow in you, and to, to want to do these things not just for the sake of doing them, but to do these things because it honors you and because that's what you desire. Because you desire for us to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to, to work mightily in each one of us, that, that you would bring a revival to this land and that it would start in our hearts, that we would be challenged to be continually changed, to be continually transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would want not only to get closer to you, but to bring others into that relationship and bring them closer to you as well. And so we ask all of these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.
be our heart's desire. That every day that we would desire to have that fire. That we would burn brightly for you and that we would understand what that means. We ask that you would continue to touch us, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. That you would burn away all the things that are not of you. And that you would help us to see you more clearly each and every day. And we ask and pray all of these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Good night. God bless you guys.